the injustice system. I was very excited on a very ordinary Monday morning to receive a letter from the local high court. I was to make myself available for jury duty three weeks hence. Yes, I could excuse myself if I gave reasonable justification, but hey, I was going to be there with bells on. The day arrived, and I found myself directed into the courtroom with the other 164 potential jurors. The charge was read. It was alleged that a young man driving under the influence had caused the death of two elderly people. If we knew anything about the case that would be likely to jeopardise us making an impartial decision, we must now leave. We were advised that if selected, we would be paid expenses and a per diem commiserate to the minimum daily pay wage. We were then read a list of all the witnesses that would be called both for the Crown and for the defence. If we knew any of them on a personal basis, we must notify the bailiff. The challenge and counter-challenge went on all morning, but yippee! Eventually I found myself part of the select twelve. Eight men and four women. We were marched to the jurors' room in order to choose a foreman before the trial began. This was when the fun started. We sat around the table and exchanged information on ourselves and whether or not we had ever served on a jury before. An elderly man admitted he had been juror on two trials some 30 or 40 years before. We were very impressed. Then a stout grey-haired woman stood up. Well, I reckon you should vote me as boss cocky. I've been on two juries myself, and more recent. I know what's what and can get the best deals for us. I had no idea what deals one could get as a juror, but after a little discussion, the rest of the sheep voted her in. Boss Cocky immediately outlined her knowledge. Yes, see, is there's no need to rush our decision. They has to pay us no matter how long wheezes in here. And I reckon we can get a good week, maybe two out of this little junket. One of the jurors said soulfully that he earned far more than minimum wage as a builder, so he would be woefully out of pocket. But Boss Cocky was not deterred. Well, it's about the rate I gets when I does me letterbox delivery. And it's a bloody sight warmer in here than when I'm out on me rounds. So I'm here for the long haul. As if to prove her point, she went to the side table, poured herself out a large mug of tea, grabbed half a dozen biscuits, and having fished out a crumpled soft-back thriller from her bag, sat back comfortably in the chair. Now, we'll just get sandwiches today for lunch, can't be helped, but if enough of you complains, then leave it to me and we'll be in one of the pubs across the road tomorrow. The bailiff came in a little later with a few formalities to impart. No telephone calls or notes sent to outside members of the public. If we felt sick, we could press the red button on the side table and had we elected a foreman. Yeah, that would be me, said Boss Cocky, looking up from her book, and motioned him over so that she could confirm her name and address 
and then signed the form to say that she had no prior knowledge of the case in hand. With the formalities out of the way, it was now lunchtime, and the much maligned sandwiches and instant coffee brought in. I began to be a little more enthusiastic about Boss Cocky. Immediately after lunch, we were led back into the court. I was fourth juror from the right, second row, and immediately recognised some of the shortcomings of the architecturally beautiful but chronically old courthouse. My back was in direct contact with the afternoon sun. In addition to making me feel nauseous, it was not conducive to encourage alert ruminations on what was transpiring out front, especially after the first couple of hours of legal mumbo-jumbo. It droned on, as one after another witness, experts, policemen and bystanders were wheeled out to give testimony in dry, monotonous voices. Any glamour I had first thought associated with the trial went quickly out of the sun-baked window. I also became aware of another frustration. When anything vaguely of interest came to light, we were marched back into the jurors' room as inappropriate or, or conflicting evidence was given. We all became more and more curious as to what we were missing, and just as important, why? The next day, Boss Cocky's insistence on our dining situation gave us some light relief. At one o'clock, we were marched over the road two by two to the post office hotel for lunch. This was of particular interest, as the hotel had only recently been convicted of indecency and sexual discrimination. The reason was easy to see, as it was apparent that having paid their fine, the owner, managers of the pub, were simply going to ignore the charges. The girls behind the bar were still serving the beer topless. We tried to avert our eyes as we went past, but wow, I didn't know mammary glands could grow so big. After four days, the summation between prosecutor and defence brought the trial to an end. It was time to vote. By now, I had got to know my fellow jurors reasonably well. They were a nice bunch of teachers, gardeners and salesmen, etc. Of the four women, Boss Cocky stood alone. There was also a red-haired woman, Pam, whom I had recognised briefly as having a daughter of the same age as my youngest son, and in the same school. Naturally, we had befriended each other immediately. The fourth lady was minute and looked like an emaciated sparrow. Maybe she was anorexic because she spent a good deal of time in the loo. Nor was she overly communicative. Our first ballot was a secret one, covertly written on pieces of paper and handed over to Boss Cocky, who added her own to the pile. Result? Nine found the prisoner not guilty, and three found the prisoner guilty. There was little doubt that Boss Cocky was one of the three. "'Cause I'm not saying I thinks either way,' she said, pulling out her book again. "'But we have to give him the benefit of the doubt.' I was one of the other guilty voters, and knew from conversations that Pam was the other. Talk around the table began in earnest, as we did what jurors are meant to do. That is, go over the trial little by little, and reconsider all the evidence.' 
Pam and I spoke earnestly and apparently well because an hour or so later a new ballot brought in a change. Now four people thought the prisoner guilty. We were forced to reconvene for another day whilst we regurgitated the evidence even more and by midday the juices were running. We had transcripts brought in, interpretations made, verbal acrimony against each other and, due to one misunderstanding of evidence, we all had to jump into a bus to go to the scene of the crime. By mid-afternoon the vote was 11 to 1. Boss Cocky had decided to decamp in favour of what was beginning to look like the winning side. We only had one dissenter, the Sparrow. How she could make any sensible decision, Pam and I queried, as she continued to spend so much time in the loo. We decided to investigate, so in desperation next time she excused herself, we followed her in. There must be something cosy about ladies' lavatories, for after a while we managed to get to her real reasoning for voting not guilty. But what if members of his family get us? She sniffed. Every night I go home, there are a load of thugs follow me in the car. Pam and I nodded and indeed now voiced our own experiences. I admitted that each evening after sessions, I had got into my car and found myself being hounded by one and sometimes two cars full of young hoons. They would tailguard me, draw up beside my car at traffic signals and call out offensive language and, when off the main road, blast on the horn. The first time this happened, I had been nervous to let them know where I had lived, so instead of driving home, had driven around the block until they got bored. The second night, I had driven to the police station. Pam agreed that her experience was much the same. Yes, this was a worry. We asked to see the bailiff. When he came in, we recounted our thoughts and fears. He agreed this was a constant problem, particularly in the case of people defending themselves who were given the names and addresses of all the jurors. It was quite normal for jurors to then be harassed or even blackmailed to bring in an acceptable decision for the defendant. This law has since been changed, I'm glad to say. The bailiff said he could organise a temporary restraining order on some of the known suspects. This was great. It meant that law offenders would be slapped on the wrist for breaking yet another offence, at the same time know who it was who had dumped on them. The bailiff then urged us to come to a unanimous decision, else we would be considered a hung jury and there would have to be a retrial. The only recourse available to Pam and I was to persuade Sparrow that there might be as much problem with the victim's friends and family if it was known she was the lone not guilty juror. They could be tempted to gain revenge. She hadn't thought of that. It was here that we found agreement with Boss Cocky's thought process, although she conveyed them far more eloquently than we could. Of course, I don't want to swaze yous one way or another. That would be wrong. But I can tell yous that once the victim side gets to know that just one person has stood in the way o' oh justice, well, they hold a grudge a good whiles, and a few bashings have been known even months after the trial. We had yet another ballot. It was a unanimous decision. 
It turned out now that Boss Cocky couldn't wait to get away. She had been spreading her jury duty experiences widely to friends and family and was going to be the special guest and star witness at a morning tea down at the next CWA meeting, which happened to fall the very next day. We returned to the courtroom. The bailiff asked if we had come to a decision, and Boss Cocky stood proud and tall and said, Yes, we have. The judge came in, bewigged and gowned, and asked the question yet again. Boss Cocky stood once more and repeated, Yes, Your Honour, we have. She then went on to state that it was a unanimous decision of guilty. There were cheers and jeers from the public gallery, and we all went home. I spoke to an attorney friend of mine a few days later and gave him an account of the trial. He shrugged. Ah, it happens a lot, he said. So, what was all the inadmissible evidence presented that we were not allowed to hear, I grumbled. We spent as much time waiting in the back room as we did in the court. He smiled and shrugged again. Well, it's probably evidence that you may consider incriminating and influence you, he said. Well, like what? It turned out the young driver was not only under age. He was driving a stolen car and had been driving while under the influence of drugs and alcohol. There were six other underage passengers in the car, all of whom were drinking. Four of them had police records, including drink driving felonies where bystanders had been injured. In one instance, there had been a death in which the current driver had also been involved. Oh, and he was currently on bail. Yep, I reckon that would have influenced me to consider him guilty. Though as it was, we had brought the verdict in without all that, but it could easily have gone the other way. Justice system or injustice system? I rest my case. Postscript about this time, I was friendly with a lovely lady called Polly. She was a big lady, a very big lady. I constantly tried to encourage her to lose weight. After all, she was morbidly obese. She would smile and shrug. God works in mysterious ways, she would say. One day, she committed suicide. Why? It turns out a few years before, she had been the driver of a car that had been involved in an accident. Two people had died. There had been an inquest. The driver of the other car had suffered a sudden heart attack and lost control, thus causing his and Polly's car to collide. She had been totally exonerated, but she had never got over it. Sometimes life just sucks. You have been listening to The Injustice System, written and recorded by Brianda Cross.